PJ Coogan and Kitchen Table Productions present 20 Minutes With, a short podcast for a busy world. Hello and welcome to another new episode of 20 Minutes With. Episode 20, in fact, of 20 Minutes With. My guest today is someone I met in the strangest of circumstances 10 years ago this year. More about the circumstances later, but being political geeks, she as an activist and me as a journalist, well, we quickly became good friends. These days, Jess Nivellon works in her dream job. She's a political advisor to a TD in Leinster House. But the journey there has been long and painful. Very painful, in fact, because for most of her 20s, Jess suffered from crippling endometriosis. The experience has left her determined to seek a better deal for women in the Irish health system, where some pretty crazy rules still apply. We're both vaccinated against the dreaded COVID, so we decided to meet on a glorious summer's afternoon in her back garden. Just the point you're at in your life at the moment is that you're gathering notes together to write a book. There's a lot to go into that book. You've had an adventurous 10 years. The biggest adventure, of course, being a, a hysterectomy at 27. Talk to you about how that all started. Um, yeah, so I suppose really it kind of started started late really uh in college um i would have been someone who kind of had a few gyne issues here and there anyway would have been maybe in and out of hospital maybe once or twice before that with um ovarian cysts but nothing that i was too worried about um nothing that was overly unusual for a girl my age um and it got to the stage really where you know, I was complaining a lot with stomach pain. They couldn't figure out what it was. Um, nobody ever made a definitive diagnosis. Um, a lot of the time I was just sent home. Um, and it culminated in my appendix being taken out when I was 24, I think. Um, but at that stage, once they'd been taken out, it had actually been too late. Like I'd had this developing, um, I I'd had this developing infection for years be- for the for the year beforehand, um, and yeah. So I suppose you know I thought I was home and dry after that, and it continued to develop. Now my GP was fantastic. He was always you know. He always looked after me anytime I came into him and, you know, had like yet again another kidney infection, whatever kind of it was always a stomach related issue or belly related issue. Um, And yeah, I suppose we kind of got three operations in before we found out that hysterectomy was the only way out of it. What was it? So um, I, as I said, I'd had my appendix out Um. But because of the infection that had occurred beforehand and that kind of continued to to eat away afterwards, um, I had adhesions covering my pelvic organs, or sorry, not my pelvic organs, my reproductive organs. Um, they were jammed together. It was, it was, it's called, um, what's it called? Uh, a frozen pelvis. So I'd been treated for it in August, 2018. Um, and subsequently ended up having surgery five weeks after that operation, that first operation, um, to have my ovary removed because there was a tumour on it. Um, and when the surgeon was there, he noticed that I was in trouble on the other side. 
fast forward about four months, had the other side operated on and um, yeah, I don't know what to say to you really, PJ. It was just, it was... Um, it sounds like you lived most of your 20s in horrendous pain. Yeah, yeah, that would be right. Uh, I was in a lot of pain. I was in and out of hospitals constantly, in and out of scanning machines. I mean, it got to the stage where like, you know, I think they kind of knew me at... At, at the different scanning um at the different scanning appointments like um i would have been in and out of hospital a lot um which is is difficult when you're someone in your mid 20s and you're starting to experience different things in life and you know you're working and you've you know you've family stuff and you've trying to get out with your friends i mean like it probably sounds really stupid but like it even got to the point where like i just i wouldn't even make plans with my friends because there was no guarantee that I'd be able to go out. I mean, you, you'd you be talking, I might have three good days out of a month, like. A month? Yeah. Wow. That messes with your head as well, doesn't it? Of course it does. Um, You just start to become really withdrawn. Like, I mean, your friends, now I, I do have a really, really good kind of small group of close-knit friends, but your friends just start to fall off. Of course they do, because they don't understand why you're not out. You don't really want to explain it. I mean... I constantly felt like, you know, people might stop my mum in the street and say, oh, how's Jessica after her operation? My mum would nearly be embarrassed to say, oh, well, she's in pain again. Because people would kind of say, really? Are you sure she is? Um, I had one doctor actually offer me uh, some antidepressants and a relaxer and ask me how stressed I was with my job. Um, because I think it just got to the stage where he was like, you know, this is probably in her head. It messes with everything. Um, you, 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 tw- your 20s are the time when you're supposed to be planning the rest of your life and, and certainly for any young woman that you might one day have a child and yeah. I know that you've suffered a lot the mental element of actually losing your reproductive organs in your 20s and let alone the menopause that comes with it did you, did you have a lot of sleepless nights about that kind of stuff? Oh sleepless nights I think think I had sleepless months about it um it's a very hard decision to make because you know I suppose like in the end I had no decision to make because the only decision I could make was having the hysterectomy like I, I there was no alternative no there wasn't there was do you know what from the moment I was opened up the second time they knew that there was no alternative it was just that I couldn't access the treatment here I had to leave um and it was a very difficult decision to make like I think I in the back of my head I always knew I'd be make I'd have to make some kind of decision like that I suppose especially after I lost the ovary the first time as well um that that was you know I I was kind of assured look you have another ovary you should be okay um but I did look at IVF and egg harvesting and egg freezing um it didn't go my way because I ended up needing the third surgery before I could complete the process but I suppose it was when I was in London having the scans uh, before the operation that we realised how serious it was. Did you ever think you were going to die? A few times, yeah. Um, I actually remember, I vividly remember the second operation. I was transferred from one hospital to another because I needed a more skilled surgeon. Um, and the surgeon came in, just checked me before surgery again and kind of said, look, you know, I'll do my best. Maybe maybe we won't need to take the ovary. Um, and actually, it was funny because they thought it was a cyst and they couldn't understand why I was in such terrible pain. Um, and I think that was like the first time in a few days that I'd actually 
gotten out of my hospital bed and walked I walked down to theatre um, and I was I was on the bed <laughs> I actually remember saying to him like you know I feel like I'm giving birth like can you make sure that I'm not <laughs> and whatever he saw when he examined me all of a sudden I had I went from the girl who had one person in front of her to the girl who had no people in front of her I was whipped into the operating theatre um, normally there's like a doctor a second doctor an anaesthetist and two nurses it was full of people and I remember when they were putting me to sleep they were doing it really fast and I remember just thinking like something was wrong mm. um, and there I mean there was nights I was at home and I was in a lot of pain and I was up during the night with the pain because it was getting to the stage where morphine wouldn't touch it and I just remember thinking a few times like there has to be something worse wrong this can't just be endometriosis or polycystic ovaries or whatever name that they'd given me at that stage because the diagnosis kept changing mm-hmm. but nobody nobody really nobody really had to look properly until until the operation started in 2018 like you've talked publicly um, about being so let's use the expression pissed off yeah that you eventually had to go to the UK what's more the the equipment and the knowledge to do the operations was here. And that's kind of spurred you on. That's one of the reasons why you're starting to write all this stuff down. Yeah, because um, I suppose, you know, unfortunately, like if I if I didn't advocate for myself at that stage, I, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know if I'd be sitting here being able to still talk to you um, because I know it was quite serious when, when I eventually had the surgery and I spoke to the surgeon afterwards he just said to me like you, you know like this is he showed me a comparison he showed me a photo of like you know what a normal uh womb and ovary would look like in a usual patient that he would operate on and he showed me mine and you were looking at something that was like normal and kind of fleshy colored to mine which was black blood stained dark blood like it was just like he said it looked like someone had just like set off a bomb inside so how do you feel when a doctor says that to you well, my first question was, how did all these other doctors miss it? Um, you know, I just, I couldn't understand that. I mean, I'd, it hadn't just been gynae specialists. It had been, I'd been to a, to kidney specialists, to urologists, to uh, gastro doctors. I'd, I'd been to every single kind of consultant you could think about um, when it comes to like your abdomen and your pelvis and all that. And none of them could find a reason. It was only when I was opened the second time that that particular doctor actually only had a conversation with me recently and said like you know I knew from the minute I opened you up that you needed sir that you needed a hysterectomy but it wasn't my place I couldn't it wasn't his place he, he couldn't do it he couldn't offer me the the surgery because um because of my age and I don't think that's a fault on him that's that's definitely not a fault on a fault on that doctor at all he's been fantastic i think mm. it's a fault on the system and and that's kind of why i started writing a lot of this stuff down our system doesn't our system doesn't have a way for a young woman to have a hysterectomy when her surgeon knows that that's what she needs that's bizarre yeah i think the only way that you 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 get that surgery in this country is if you have cancer obviously and i mean look i mean we're sitting here now and like it's I suppose it's it's been a hard road 
because I've had to advocate for myself and you know I did actually ask my surgeon after I think it was like six months after the hysterectomy I did say to him like did I actually make the right decision do you think and it was then that the the surgeon who operated on me um outside of the country said to me yeah you absolutely did you you needed that operation like I mean I woke up from that surgery and my pain had disappeared now obviously I just had surgery so like I had surgical pain but like this unrelenting pain was just gone it just I don't know where it was but it wasn't there anymore and then I started to wonder did I imagine the pain was the pain really that bad maybe these other doctors that were asking me about stress levels were right like maybe it was something wrong with me mentally I just do you know it was it, it was kind of a hard road to to go down like do, do you resent a system that leaves you thinking like that you do I think I, I resent that system I don't resent the people in it mm. but I resent the fact that we have an unyielding system that did that to me in the first place Um, like at the end of the day do you know who knows like I may have had no kids I might have had four you know we'll never know because that choice was made for me the day that well the days that I was consistently just ignored um, the days where I was fobbed off the days the days where my where the where ultimately the surgery that I needed was delayed yeah. do you know um, and it's like it's even I suppose like one of the lasting effects for me really is that like I find very hard to trust doctors I would have like I suppose look you know that I have a sight impairment so I would have been used to kind of being around doctors maybe once or twice a year and it, they were never people I was afraid of but I suppose it's gotten to the stage now where like you know like I'm living in Dublin now but I won't change my GP from my Cork GP because well number one he's fantastic but number two I don't trust another doctor with my care now I find it extremely difficult to do that I find it very difficult to trust a nurse with my care a physiotherapist with my care and it's not that I don't trust the person it's it's the system they're working and I'm very very um I'm very cautious of it now and if the system tells me that you know well the diagnosis we gave you is this diagnosis but I I don't feel it's right for me or or I don't feel it's it's matching with what's going on in my body like I'll question it and I'll do what I need to do to to get a second or a third opinion I mean we're having that issue now with HRT like I thought everyone got HRT after an operation but they don't it's just when where I had like I had my surgery in 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 London so like it was literally a case of I'm starting you on HRT here it is whereas until that discussion on the Joe Duffy show a few weeks ago I did not realize how many women across the country of menopausal age were actually dealing with the menopause without HRT I mean like that's scandalous yeah and the the fact is that that some of the some some of the reasons they're being given for it make no scientific sense. That's that's the worst part of it. I think it's driven your activism. It's probably best to interject at this stage and tell people how we met. I leave uh, that one up to you. <laughs> well, when Fianna Fáil got their arses handed to them in the election in two thousand and eleven. For some bizarre reason, best known to yourself, I think you were friendly with someone in the party. You joined that night while the whole thing was collapsing. And, <laughs> and and I said, I must meet this lunatic. And that's how we met. Yeah. Now, you subsequently left them and you joined Sinn Féin. But, but your activism 
for disability, for everything. How much of your political interest and activism is driven by your own personal experience? To be honest with you, all of it's driven by it. I mean, <clears throat> like I, my family background, like, I mean, my parents weren't, I don't think they were members of any party. Um, I think they were big fans of the Labour Party <laughs> at one stage. Um, but they, they weren't political, but they would have always voted and we would have always come from a family who like, you know, you cast your vote. Um, so I would have always been politically aware, but I suppose, you know, even going back to my childhood, like I wouldn't have had access to a special needs assistant until very late in primary school. So it affected my ability to read and write. Um, the same in secondary school, I had difficulties accessing supports that were legislatively, I know now, were there and were supposed to be there. Um, and like, I suppose I would have, even when I did my, my thesis in college, I I did a public health degree for four years and then I, I did a master's in government and like I wanted to do my thesis in something that I was interested in. Um, so I did it on the Epson Act, which is a, a piece of legislation that kind of underpins the supports that you get in secondary school as a person with, um, well, I suppose, look for me, it's a vision impairment, but for anyone else, it's it's a, you know, my, it might be a learning disability, it might be um, a physical disability. Um, and I wanted to prove that like what I went through again with a system that was unyielding, I wanted to prove that like this has an impact, even though you've put the legislation in there, you either haven't put the funding or, you know, the corporate, you know, I suppose the corporate structure behind it. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I suppose I wanted to, to, to kind of bring that to life a bit. So I did. And it just kind of spurred me on then. Um, like, I suppose at the end of the day, like when it comes to my eyes and struggling for supports in schools, I don't want another child to have to struggle that way because I only succeeded like in spite of that system, mm. not with the help of it. Um, and I suppose then when all this started to happen to me, I realized how badly women's health um, is dealt with in this country. and. I mean, like, I suppose I was going through a lot of this when the cervical cancer screening um, issue was being raised by the likes of Emma Vic Fahuna and Vicky Phelan. And, like, it's only when you realise then, like, you realise, you know, someone shouldn't have to go through this. And I suppose subsequently then having the hysterectomy, I'm like, if I, like, I was put in this position by a system. Do you know what I mean? And I don't want that to happen to anyone else. So I, and, and I do think as well, I suppose, look, using my political hat as well, like politicians are much more able to, to, to react and to, to move on, on a story when it's personalized, when it's someone from their neighborhood or it's a friend of theirs or it's a friend of a friend, they're much more able to move on something and you will see movement out of them when you can put an actual real person's face to it. Mm. Mm. Some feminist commentators talking about the cervical check and talking about something that, like you, what you've gone through would say it's misogyny in the system. Do you agree with that? I mean, some of your best doctors have been men. Do you think there's misogyny in the system? Like, I suppose, look, that that's kind of a hard question, really. I mean, I'm not someone that openly, or do you know what? I'm not really someone that thinks about misogyny on a day-to-day -day basis, if I'm honest with yeah. you. Um, 
my doctors are men because they're the best in their field yeah you know uh, one of my doctors was a woman um one of one of the doctors who misdiagnosed me like why does it matter what gender there is yeah. what, what gender they are um i suppose look in terms of things like you know the age you are having a hysterectomy if you've had any children before you or after you've had a hysterectomy that is misogynistic to me do you know what i mean and but i i do i suppose i can understand as well that look we also have a hangover from the catholic church in this country where i mean was it up until 20 years ago if you wanted if as a female you wanted to be sterilized or have your tubes tied your husband had to agree to it so you, you know i don't know how much of it is misogyny and how much of it is still because we're in the background we're still mm. old catholic ireland um i don't think men go out on purpose to you know put women in a situation where they need hysterectomies or where their cervical smears are read incorrectly i don't think that's what happens um I do think that there's a lack of gynae care overall in this country. I think that's a funding issue. And to be honest, I think if, I suppose, look, our health minister at the moment is a man. Um, I think if he was, if it was a woman, you'd probably see more funding in maternal and gynae care. Um, mm. Because just, it's only when you interact with the system do you realise where the faults mm. in it are, you know. But misogynistic? No, I don't think so. Right. To wrap up, um, You've had many years of pain, thankfully they're over, for the most part at least, and you're able to get on with your life, even though the joy of having children has been taken from you. Are you happy now? Um, are any of us ever really happy? Um, I suppose someone, someone once told me that, like, you know, happiness is a journey, and I think I probably understand that saying a bit more now. Um, I think it was you also shared the saying with me, it'll be okay in the end and if it's not okay it's not the end um so it's not the end yet um am i happy i have really really happy days um do i find it difficult to hear that people are pregnant or that someone's just had a baby sometimes um but like i mean are you ever happy all every day in your life i don't think you are thanks for being with us today no problem pj thanks for having me Jess Nivellon is very active on social media. If you search for surviving hysterectomy, you'll find her. Thanks, Jess, for the chat and the coffee and the cake. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back with a new interview next Saturday. If you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you'll find them all on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, next Saturday at midday, have a good week and stay safe. Thank you for listening to 20 Minutes With, a short podcast for a busy world. Please help to spread the word and watch social media for news of our next episode.